0: Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create
1: change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com.
0: You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson. A presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. And Welcome back to the Heartland Politics show and podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK Quad Cities NPR. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of Northwestern Illinois and Eastern Iowa. This is your host, Robin Johnson, and my guest today is someone who I've really been looking forward to having on uh, to talk about our region, issues facing our region. He's uh, the relatively new uh, correspondent covering the Midwest for The Economist magazine, one of the best magazine news magazines out there. I've been a subscriber for a number of years. And uh, so I'm really anxious to get his thoughts on our region, talk about some of his recent work. Uh, his name is Daniel Knowles. Uh, Daniel, thank you uh, for taking the time to be on today. Robin, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. It's uh, delightful to be on. Thank you for having me. I've got to ask, uh, you've been the Midwest correspondent for The Economist now for about a year and a half. Um, Previously, you covered uh, global issues uh, and uh, you were uh, also also the correspondent for Africa. But I'm just curious, uh, what are your initial impressions of our Midwest region based on some of the work you've done?
1: Oh gosh! So I've been thinking about this. I think there are, you know there's more than one Midwest. Um, I think maybe the initial impression it's very flat. That's that that's kind of true everywhere. Um, uh, you know, just topographically. But um, you know, but but the reason I kind of wanted to move here, the 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 Midwest is um, the the Midwest that I'm perhaps most interested in is, is is the Midwest of you know the the older industrial cities. You know, I'm living in Chicago, but you know places like Cleveland. Detroit, Milwaukee, all these kind of cities that grew up, you know, the end of the 19th, early 20th century, sort of along railway lines and and canals and waterways. Um, but then, you know, I guess what I, I've also kind of learned, um, you know, th- th- there's there's different Midwests, you know, there's the Midwest of the Great Plains of kind of agricultural towns. And then there's uh, the Midwest that I almost think of as slightly Southern, places like Columbus um, in Ohio, you know, or, or which kind of these very like fast going sprawling cities um know not so old kind of quite new quite car heavy but uh um um different so so i think it's it's uh as a as a region it maybe you know maybe that's my overall impression it's a region that actually has multiple identities and so it's kind of difficult to give it to give it um to kind of give it one i i think perhaps the overall takeaway is that it's a, a region that 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 has that doesn't always um, uh, have a clear kind of view to outsiders precisely because it has these different parts of it, you know, it's very different whether you're in kind of rural Iowa to, you know, here where I live in Chicago to, you know, say parts of Detroit um, or you know upper Michigan, for example, um, all quite different worlds um, that share a, a lot in common so i don't know if that's a very good answer i think i think there are different the west's and and I, i've got i'm kind of still still finding out about all of them <laughs> well i think according to me anyway i think that's the right answer
0: uh I, I so you pass the test uh it's uh our region this is hard to uh have one clear identity and i think sometimes that that creates some of the challenges facing the region is that it does have different identities and it's hard to speak with one voice uh, because it is so different.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Well, some of your work I think has reflected this. And I, I, I really, uh, I, I I think it's very interesting uh, for somebody like you who's new to the region uh, to come in and observe and write about things. And uh, you kind of cover all the different Midwests in your writing so far in your year and a half. And I, uh, um, I want to. I want to start with with uh, the the rural areas. I thought your your uh, piece you did on the rural economy, uh, the farm economy, and how it might not really be related directly to the health of the rural economy was quite interesting.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, so that came out of I was actually um, that was over a year or so ago, pretty much um, because I, I went out to. Uh, it was North Dakota, I did the reporting for that piece. And I went there initially, because it was around the time that, of course, the war in Ukraine had started. And the foreign editors, The Economist, um, were sort of very interested in, well, um, you know, what's going to happen with all of grain production, all this kind of Ukrainian grain is getting knocked off the market. And um, uh we you know prices of food are going to go up and this is going to cause huge problems in particularly parts of the world like egypt um you know parts of africa the middle east um you know where kind of imported grain is a, a really big deal you know i mean it started the kind of um <laughs> a lot of the arab spring kind of um were the last grain shortages and so so of course you know the biggest place in the united states for grain production is is the midwest is particularly the kind of plain states um, Kansas, North Dakota um, so and and in North Dakota they grow winter wheat so 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 you know North Dakota was the kind of american state which might be able to produce a lot more wheat to kind of counter what was going off the market so i went out initially for that reason um but as i was kind of talking to farmers and particularly visiting um you know i visited one one farm and a couple of grain elevators a town called rugby in north dakota it just became very apparent that like there's this huge gap between sort of um on the one hand, you have the, these these farmers who are making, you know, kind of more money than ever. I mean, I won't say that their lives are particularly easy or that they're, you know, super rich, but like they're doing very well out of sort of um, higher food prices. And 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 in recent years now, I mean, on the other hand, this kind of rural economy that's more generally sort of disappearing around, I mean, you know, the populations are falling, people aren't staying in rural areas. And it's obviously been a big thing in american politics in recent years um yeah. and i i think there's a kind of you know people think of the rural economy as as being all farms but it's not anymore you know farms are so efficient and big in this country that they they just don't employ that many people um but the farmers you know they 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 still want to live in a community they want to kind of uh, send their kids to a school with other children and that sort of thing it's getting harder and harder because there just aren't many other jobs out there if you're not actually a farmer on the farm. And so, so yeah, so that was what that piece was about. Sorry, I rambled on a little bit there. (laughs) No, that's fine. I I thought it was
0: fascinating. Um, You know, our listeners are likely aware uh, uh, the farm bill uh, is up for renewal in Congress uh, this year. And uh, um, subsidies are, of course, a major part of that. You write about how heavily subsidized the farm economy has been over the last several years. I just read a piece um, in another publication that the farm economy is looking really strong this year, but a lot of it is propped up by by subsidies. You made a comment at the end of the article, which which I, that's what I love about the Economist. All the writers, and particularly you, kind of leave you um, with, with your final paragraph wanting more. But it talked about are, are subsidies contributing. Uh, somewhat to rural decline. Uh, and, and that's kind of a counterintuitive statement, but I think uh, your article kind of pointed a little bit to that.
1: Well, I think there's there's something, there's a kind of argument about the way subsidies work in the US, you know, they 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 push all this money towards farms, um, but larger farms basically get more. And uh, the kind of incentives are for your farm to grow and grow and grow. Um they you know you you you're kind of it's based on things like crop insurance is one of the big insurance subsidies effectively um and as farms grow and they get more efficient um you know they employ fewer people they they're kind of uh, they're more competitive they um the people who you know, smaller farmers find themselves gradually squeezed out by this, and I I think there's a kind of, it's perhaps this would be happening in a kind of market economy anyway. But the thing about subsidies is that they. They, the, the subsidies that exist in the US in particular really push farmers towards kind of growing grain crops and cash crops, you know, soybeans, um, wheat, uh, obviously corn, these big kind of mechanized, you know, crops that are very effective um, to farm in a very highly mechanized way. And there are no subsidies for, you know, growing fruits and vegetables, um, which is, you know, kind of... Perhaps what what a lot of Americans ought to be eating more, um, but also require more labor. Um, require kind of you know more people literally on the farms to to do it. So you look at kind of farms in California, where obviously an awful lot of fruits and veggies grown. Um, you know they they rely on a lot of migrant labor to to um, to kind of to do it because California is such an expensive place to be and that sort of thing. And in the meanwhile, in kind of, you know, these, these towns in the Midwest, um, these small rural towns have seen kind of kind of populations, you know, disappearing, um, and they're all growing these kind of grain crops, which, you know, only require Kind of giant farming equipments combine harvesters and and planters everything's automated um uh, kind of rural factories and so you, you do wonder how much the sort of subsidies the way create this this sort of economy where there's not much left for for sort of non-farmers in rural areas yeah
0: it's i, I thought that was a very astute observation and uh, uh one of the things that we we've you know topics of this show over the years has been for our, our friends in the cities that uh, agri- farming is not the same as rural. Uh, the rural economy is quite different. And one of those areas, I think um, you, you pointed out in your piece that the number of jobs directly related to farming is quite low. And I think that would surprise a lot of people, but manufacturing is a major component of the rural economy. And, and I know this is something you followed as well in some of the bigger cities, but the, uh, the president is, and and some even well the former president Donald Trump the current president Joe Biden are making a major push to uh, have more manufacturing here in the United States. You've you've touched on that some in your writing, but uh, um, what do you think? Uh, how is this going to play out? Do you think as far as our role in the global economy and uh, with with you know some of our free trade laws with our allies who are already complaining a little bit about build american uh provisions that the president has uh, has outlined and the former president did it, uh, donald trump did as well D- do you think manufacturing can kind of be uh the savior of some of these uh left behind communities in the
1: midwest gosh i think that's that's the big question isn't it and um for a lot of this region and i i you know, I think I have to say that that with with the Economist's editorial line, I have a little bit of skepticism. I mean, I think that you know, the it was interesting. I was actually um uh, outside a factory in Wisconsin um late last year where there's been a strike going on. Um, it's a uh, factory um that makes tractors and. One of the kind of ironies I was talking to these workers was they were saying, "Well, you know, one of the difficulties with the strike is that there are a lot of jobs out there right now, and so our kind of um, union members have been drifting off to other factories." And I think that you know there is a bit of a manufacturing boom that's that's happening um, in places where where perhaps you know for a long time, for decades, we've been saying manufacturing jobs will never come back, Um, and some of that you know is to do with these kind of policies that you know now that both this administration and the previous one have put in, in place i think particularly the infrastructure bill and the, the chips act and um and the inflation reduction Act. all of these push enormous amounts of money into what's effectively sort of industrial policy in a way that hasn't happened in america for quite a long time and i think that you know there will be jobs created out of that um on the other hand though you know, the long-run trend of kind of manufacturing jobs, you know, not only in America but everywhere in the world is to for, for them to be disappearing because it's not really so much about trade. You know, some jobs did disappear from from Detroit, for example, because of foreign car factories. but it's it's to do with, Efficiency. Um, we are very, very good at, at making things. And anytime I visited a factory, you know, I, both here in the Midwest and in the UK and in other places I've reported, you know, they show you these incredible machines that they've invested in and that, they, you know, you see kind of um, plastic moulders and metal cutting machines and and you think all of the stuff would have been done by people a generation ago. So it just gets more and more efficient. And you know, is it at the, the River Rouge complex in Detroit sometime um last year as well. And you know, that used to employ something like a hundred thousand workers in the kind of in its peak in the 1940s. And it's and it's now growing again. They've got they've got the the um kind of four pickup trucks the electric ones being assembled there and they're adding workers you know but they're adding from sort of five six thousand and so I think kind of what I'm kind of coming to is that you know I think you probably can have a growth in manufacturing and output you know there's a lot of physical things that are going to be needed but in terms of jobs you know if those jobs are going to remain sort of well-paid decent jobs that people expect from manufacturing they're going to have to get more efficient and over time that means you know there are fewer of them um more robots and, and fewer people and i think that that's the very long run trend and so i think you know certainly what my editors and i think i share it worry about with this kind of attempt to recreate you know a, a great manufacturing economy is that you're sort of fighting a losing battle you might be able to help certain sectors and industries but um you know but the the you're not going to reverse the tide that's a long run trend towards more and more services and you do look around and go you know how much more physical stuff do people need like there are certain things wind turbines solar panels and you know kind of electric cars that like we need to change our infrastructure for, for climate change reasons now that does demand more physical stuff but like you know, to, to, if your kind of income goes up, do you need, you know, no, no, people might want the second car. Nobody really needs a third car or, you know, all, all this kind of extra, you know, nobody needs three more televisions or whatever. Like if you as people's incomes go up, they tend to spend it more on going out or you know, going out to restaurants yeah. or theater or whatever. So that's going to be the challenge, basically, long run, I think, for this kind of manufacturing um this attempt to recreate the manufacturing economy of old um and for, for sort of left behind places as well well they they still you know a lot of towns that have relied on manufacturing in the past well there's then the question of do they have the infrastructure and the skills for these new manufacturing jobs that have been created and and uh, that's that's uh that's an interesting question itself and I, I think that you know there will be a worry that some you know here in chicago which is not a left behind place you know there's a lot of talk about how much manufacturing could be come to the to to the region because they want to be close to universities a lot of new factories they want to be close to you know kind of um very highly paid you know sort of skills workers designers that kind of thing and and so that i think is the other part of it is you know if there is this boom will it come to to kind of um the left behind places, the places that, that have struggled most, or, or will it come to the biggest c- cities um, in the Midwest too? So that's the other question that I think is still an open one.
0: You're listening to Heartland Politics on WVIK Public Radio in the Quad Cities. This is your host, Robin Johnson, and my guest today is the Midwest correspondent for The Economist magazine, Daniel Knowles. Uh, my pleasure to have him as a guest. He's uh, He's been covering the Midwest now for a year and a half, uh, we've been talking a little bit about his impressions of our region and some of the w- recent work he's done on the farm economy, the rural economy, and um, uh, manufacturing. Uh, and I noticed in your background uh, a, cu- a couple things. Uh, Daniel studied history and economics at Oxford, and uh, he previously was the Africa correspondent, and he also worked at the foreign desk for The Economist, where he covered, among other things, fragile states. Based on your experience here, Is the United States right now a fragile state in light of everything that's been happening over the past five, six years?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, So, you know, I don't think it is. I actually think America is an incredibly resilient country. And I remember talking, you know, to friends, particularly a few American foreign correspondents, that sort of, but American friends who are sort of like, you know, genuinely, perhaps a year or two ago, I hear it less nowadays, but saying, oh, you know, well, we're gonna have a civil war in America. The country's collapsing. And I, I and I don't I don't actually think that's true. I think that, that there's something extraordinarily resilient about um American governance. And part of it is that there is no one of the reasons I'm so interested, and in, I love covering this country, and I wanted to come to come back here and take this job is that you have this um incredibly um kind of decentralized systems of government. You know, you have an enormous amount of power in the hands of, you know, not only the federal government or the president, but, but right down, you know, mayors and, and, you know, in Chicago by local aldermen has a lot of influence over what happened to my neighborhood. And I think that decentralization is a source of resilience is a source of strength because, you know, somebody might be doing something terrible in one city or in one place, one kind of district, but, but somebody somewhere else will be trying something new and, 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 um e- experimental that said i you know i think that it's obviously a big problem for the country that that uh kind of everything in in congress and in washington dc is so kind of finely balanced and it's so difficult to 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 get much done and that there's such a um an enormous kind of um Division in 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 that city. I think what's what's sort of interesting, being you know out here being, living in Chicago, covering the Midwest, and not spending that much time in D.C. is to realize that how you know as polarized as America can seem, you know, on cable news or in 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 the news, and and superficially it's not really. It's quite difficult to find you know even here in chicago which is obviously as blue as it gets you can find the occasional republican and when you go out to these very kind of you know red rural districts there are still people with like kind of um i don't know rainbow flag signs on the back of their 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 trucks and and craft beer bars where like they you know the, the 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 divide is not as big as it can seem kind of you know the uh, on on paper and on On cable news, Um, the reality is that there are actually liberals uh, and conservatives in most parts of this country, pretty much everywhere you go, and they know each other, uh, and they talk and everybody's got a conservative or a liberal kind of friend, you know, somebody on the opposite side who they, they argue with. So I, I kind of think that that it's very easy when you just follow politics and particularly when you're as a reporter and you just talk to very partisan people who turn up at rallies to think that America's kind of as broken as ever, um, you know, that, that 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 it's getting worse and that everybody's kind of gone off the rails. But I, I don't think that's true. I think what what is the problem, what is the reality is that, you know, a lot of the time politics is kind of an annoyance to people. It doesn't inject on their li- on their lives all that much, except in elections, and they don't feel all that, that kind of powerful. And then you have a, a you know, a small pop kind of part of the population for whom politics is almost like a blood sport. And they're the ones who you see on, on the news. They're the ones, frankly, as a journalist, people like me are the easiest people to access and to interview. And that can give you quite a distorted picture of America some of the time.
0: I, you know, that's a great, uh, great. I, I feel better hearing that, uh, and I think a lot of people, a lot of our listeners, will. But uh, I, I, you know, you mentioned the local, uh, our decentralized system of government uh, as a strength, and that, that's a great segue into another piece you wrote that I found fascinating on a, on a suburb of Indianapolis and the, the role played uh, by a local mayor and and the the importance of local leadership, and I think. You know, to affect change. And I think we for we, we don't appreciate that enough, how difficult change is at the local level, and especially in an era of social media where you can get attacked so easily. But uh, I thought that was a great story. If you we've got time here for uh, uh, just a couple more questions. But if you could like in a couple minutes summarize that and, and the, uh, the, the characteristics that this, the mayor showed in achieving change
1: yeah oh it's a fascinating place so yeah the mayor of of carmel indiana um a guy called jim Brainerd, who's um a republican uh but you know um quite a fascinating man i found him incredibly persuasive and he's you know been been trying to essentially rebuild his 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 town for 30 odd years and has done so quite successfully in this to turn it into something that more resembles a city so he's they built this downtown and it shows you and it's something that's fascinating to me as a as a british person our city in in the united kingdom we have such a centralized system of government that you know mayors and local councils and things can't really do very much but but what Car- carmel shows is if you go there is that you know a mayor who's kind of can persuade his you know his council and his his budget offices and so on of an idea he has an incredible amount of power with land use control with taxation with borrowing to you know to really transform a place um and uh, and and he's just he's stepping down at the end of this year and there's going to be a new election so it'll be interesting to see what happens in 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 carmel um, and whether this kind of development that they've had continues but it's um uh but I, you know but i think local politics is is often so viciously fought it's so it's literally personal you know you have to go and knock on people's door you have it's a it's based on relationships and it's and i kind of think that's where the interesting stuff happens rather than you know national politics which is also much about television advertising and and kind of you know the airwaves battle it's local stuff is where right real change can kind of begin and and that's what that's what makes me quite optimistic about america is going to places like carmel and seeing that you know one guy can persuade his neighbors can persuade voters to do some Something quite radical and it works um so yeah and, and i like it it's uh, i guess you'll lead on to the other question about my book so so that links to Kabul. <laughs> yeah i i uh,
0: i, I want to close we've got about two minutes left here just uh, you just uh, completed a book i assume this is your first book uh,
1: talk a little bit about it why why you wrote it why it's important and why people should read it uh, so thank you for letting me talk about this. And yes, my so my book is called Karma Garden, and it comes out um, next month. Or it comes out in March, and uh, it is a argument. It's it's quite a forceful argument that sort of the. Um, you know all over the rich world, I think particularly in America, but that, that we've allowed um cars, um, automobiles to dominate our lives too much, you know, that, that that we're too reliant on them. We're all forced to to drive, um and that we'd be kind of happier, healthier, and richer if we could kind of live in places where we didn't need to to use our cars quite so much. And uh you know and, and I, I think that's something I feel where i I, i'm i'm very lucky to live in a neighborhood in chicago where we don't really have to drive i i get around most places by bicycle but of course covering the midwest i drive quite a bit and um and, and i i think kind of for cities in this this region you know there's there's so much um kind of possibility to to I think kind of getting rid of some of the car-centric planning of the 1950s and 1960s is quite a good way and a, a prerequisite to to revitalizing um some you know some midwestern cities that have fallen on hard times i think particularly places like cleveland and detroit i mean detroit's done quite a good job of doing it already actually you know making it places where people want to be able and are able to walk and to get around on on foot is a way is it is an economic development strategy and um so yeah so the book uh, has a bunch of reporting from the Midwest but I also went to um you know I did an awful lot of it before I moved here and it has reporting from from various parts of Europe um uh, from bits of Africa from Kenya and, and the Democratic Republic of Congo where I worked a lot before um from India and it, it's it, it was it's my fir- it is my first book and it's a it's a great big argument basically about why you should all give up your pickup trucks which I'm hoping you know will at least, interest people, maybe not annoy them too much, but maybe spike them a little bit in the Midwest, uh, you know, where people often are very bad, wedded to their pickup trucks. So. Well, we'll uh,
0: look forward to that. And uh, we're always interested here in provocative topics. And uh, uh-huh. um, yeah, it'll be, it'll, the, the pickup trucks are about like uh, guns are to the rural culture. So, uh, um, but I, I think it's, yeah. it's uh, we're again, always open to people uh, these ideas (laughs) on how to make things better. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on today. Our guest today on Heartland Politics is uh, Daniel Knowles, who's the uh, Midwest correspondent for The Economist magazine. He's been here about a year and a half, and I look forward to having you back at some point and continue to follow your writing. I think it's very interesting and uh, uh, some very astute observations here
1: on our region. Thank you, Daniel, for being our guest today. Uh, This was absolutely delightful. Thank you ever so much for having me on, Robin. And I... uh... Um, you know given the caliber of your previous guests I'm slightly terrified to listen to my cell phone uh, when it when it does come out but this is this was great
0: listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR.